0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Lord God, it is only by your grace that we are able to live at all. We pray that you would show us to open our eyes today to the costliness of this grace, that we may live faithfully before you and and generously with others. We ask all this in your son's name, Amen. Well, good morning, Church of the Ascension. It's really good to be back here with you. And today, I want to talk to you about the idea of grace, because that's actually what our passages from Jonah and Matthew are about today. Grace in these passages is something that is troubling. It is not something that we can easily get our minds around. And in the church, we need to talk about the grace of God all the time because grace contradicts every single thing we know about how the world works. Now, the way that we talk about grace in our ordinary sort of English language doesn't really grasp this. It doesn't really like, capture how troubling grace is. Grace can either refer to kind of a second chance you know, like a grace period, or, you know, the idea that you get a second chance after you've done something wrong, or it can refer to like an excellent and aesthetically pleasing action. But neither of these things captures what Jonah and Matthew are revealing to us today. In Scripture, grace is scandalous. Grace scandalizes, especially it scandalizes the people of God. And I don't just mean The church of Jesus Christ. I mean, the whole covenant people of God, if we're to listen to Jonah. Now, this is deeply ironic because the word for grace in the New Testament is the word gift. But this is a gift that is given that is not always desired. It comes as a gift that the church doesn't really want to open, it is not always a welcome gift. It's a gift that is most often in scripture rejected at first. And for that reason, and I'm including myself here, we don't actually want to live as though grace is real. Because grace, generally speaking, does not feel good. Grace is painful. Grace is not the velvet caress of kid gloves gently bearing us aloft to the celestial chorus. Grace is a flaming sword that cuts and burns and makes us bleed. Grace is suddenly being called to account for sin. Grace is the gift of not being allowed to deceive others for your whole life and then be buried with your sin and suddenly find yourself before your maker completely unprepared and unreconciled. That's grace. Grace is an insuperable obstacle that shatters our illusion about the comfortable and pain-free life that we thought we would live. That's grace. Grace shatters the proud and mockers in those who delight and exult when others stumble and fall. Grace levels kingdoms and sets up other ones in their place. Grace is the prophets being sent as the Lord's gift to Israel declaring that they have ceased to be Israel and instead have become Egypt. They who were slaves have become enslavers and oppressors grinding the face of the poor. They who were to worship the one God have become idolaters. They who were to be a pure and holy people before the Lord have become, have become, uh, they've become those who have sought their own self-interest. They have become ones who do what is pleasing in their own eyes. Grace is the gift of truth is the gift of an encounter with reality. The gift of the prophets comes into a situation which has become so corrupted by sin that no one can see or perceive correctly, where down has become up and up has become down, so to speak. And the prophets speak the truth of God into that situation. And the people do not want that gift. They like the life that they have made and they're happy thinking that God has sanctioned it. After all, they have the trappings of religion, and so they stone the prophets. And the heartbreaking fact about the people of God is that in every generation, this cycle is repeated over and over again. The thing about this gift is that it is not an ordinary gift. Naively, in our own sort of way of thinking about the world, we're hoping for gifts that are pleasant, right? More money. More rewards, more power, more material possessions, things that will be pleasant. That's what we think of when we think of gifts, right? The theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this cheap grace because it conforms to a way of thinking about ourselves which is not true. Grace, when it comes, is costly. Because it is the gift of God himself. It is not an ordinary gift. It's the gift of God himself. It is the gift of God's holy and purifying presence that is given in the gift. And so when grace comes to us, it exposes what is in us. Are we delighted in the presence of God himself or do we only love him because of the benefits and the status that belonging to him brings to us? Grace shows us, when it comes, that it is entirely possible to do everything a Christian does and yet be an atheist. It is possible to have the truth on our lips and yet be on the run from God. It is possible to worship the true God and yet secretly displace Him with idols in our own hearts, to profane and to pollute the holy of holies that is in our hearts with pagan sacrifices. And grace is a gift that exposes us and then it allows us to make a decision will we start again with God at the center of everything or is that too demanding is it too much for God to ask so that we turn and openly give ourselves to the idols of the nations grace when it comes suspends our sense of control, and even our sense that we know what God is up to in us or in the world. When grace comes to us, we are reminded in a very visceral way that God is the protagonist of the story of the whole world and not us. And this is the most powerful effect of grace. It's a change of perspective. We suddenly see things from God's point of view, rather than from our own fallible and limited point of view. We see how we really are, rather than how we would like to think of ourselves, rather than how we project ourselves to the world. And because of that, when grace comes, we're also able to see what God is doing in the world freshly. Grace makes God strange and frightening to us again, or maybe for the very first time. But in the process of receiving grace, we're transformed. God becomes electric and attractive to us. Following Jesus becomes something exhilarating rather than something boring or ordinary. Because we suddenly know him as he really is a towering and commanding presence. The one who holds the universe itself in being. He is no longer a pale and domesticated figure that we have created for ourselves. In other words, we are no longer dealing with an idol, but the true and living God. And it suddenly becomes the greatest imaginable adventure to follow Christ. And if we don't know a grace that works like that, then we don't know the grace that Jesus and Jonah are describing in our readings today. When we come to Jesus' parables I want to remind us that we have to remember that the most important thing about interpreting them is who the parable is being spoken to. Sometimes the parable is spoken to the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the teachers of the law who, although they are insiders to Israel, are outsiders to the band of disciples that Jesus is creating. Sometimes the parables are spoken to the disciples themselves. And that's the case in the parable of the workers in the vineyard today. We have to remember that Jesus in this parable has just spoken to the rich young ruler and he's told him that if he wants to enter the kingdom of God, he needs to sell all that he owns and give it to the poor and follow him just as his other disciples have. And as you remember, the rich young ruler goes away sad because he has great wealth. His wealth is the millstone around his neck that drags him down into the deep. Now the disciples, quite understandably, I think if you and I are in the situation, we probably respond in exactly the same way. They look at Jesus with anxiety and they respond by saying, if that's how things are, then nobody can be saved, including us. And Jesus sort of shrugs and he says, yeah, that's the way it is. (laughs) The rich will have an exceptionally hard time getting into the kingdom of God. And that's because the insulation that wealth creates is impenetrable to the assaults of earthly weapons. The only thing that can pierce the thick, self-protective layer that wealth creates is the presence of God himself. That is the only thing that can burn and incinerate that layer of self-protection that wealth creates. But Jesus says that's exactly what grace does. When God comes to us, things that were impossible become possible. Guess what, disciples? If you thought it was impossible to give up all your money and obey Jesus completely and in everything, no matter what is demanded, it's simply because the grace of God has not yet gripped your hearts completely. Jesus seems to be saying in his explanation of his interaction with a rich young ruler that if there are places of resistance in us, things that we want to hold on to that belong to us and not him, then grace has not yet fully displaced sin in us. And this is because sin blinds. And by blinding our minds, it binds us. It binds us into a false way of living, a false vision of reality. One of the main things that sin does is to create an entire world, whether that's our internal world, the whole way that we think about ourselves and our interactions with the world and our relationship with God and everything, Or a social system of which we are a part, which feels fully logical and rational and normal. On one level, it totally works. But in reality, it is completely in rebellion against God. This reality that we have made up for ourselves completely refuses and resists His presence on every level. It's like an airless vacuum which denies oxygen to everyone who lives inside of it. It cuts us off from the source of life. And sinful worlds are almost invisible to those who live inside of them because they are designed to be invisible. They are designed to blind and to bind. They are designed to minimize our point of contact with the truth so that the illusion won't be shattered. But grace is God's refusal to allow us to spiritually suffocate, Grace, as the great Catholic priest John Donnelly once wrote, is God's refusal to allow human beings to die from asphyxiation. When grace shows up, it shows us how to open the window and let fresh air into the dark and stagnant place that we have been living. It makes it possible suddenly to obey for the first time, to follow Jesus to where he wants us to be in the light in reality. And when Jesus turns and confronts the disciples in their response to the rich young ruler, this is the point of the story that he tells. He looks at them and says, yeah, you've left everything to follow me. And in the resurrection, you'll have everything back and much, much more. But grace has not yet fully beat back the grip that sin has on your hearts. And the evidence of that is that you still think that you are at the center of this story. You have not yet grasped the fact, the fundamental fact, that this story is about God and his great love for everything that he has made and his unwillingness to allow it to die. So he tells this story about the workers in the vineyard. Now, at one level... And I think it's completely appropriate to see this as a story about God's redemption of the nations. The vineyard in scripture is one of the principal images that, that God uses to describe Israel. We see it in Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5 and other places. And so we can read this at one level as a story about how God gradually extends his saving grace to more and more peoples of the earth. His saving grace is given in its entirety, not only to those workers who came first, those in Israel, but to those who are coming late, even to us at the last. Read in this way, the story tells Israel and the disciples as representatives of new Israel, not to doubt the goodness of God. You served him for longest, and you're receiving the same reward as those who came first, sorry, as those who came last, not because God is is mean-spirited, not because God is trying to deceive you, but because God is generous. That is a perfectly valuable and valid way of reading this story, but I don't think it's the one that Jesus had foremost in his mind as he told this story. Because in the context of Matthew, Jesus is speaking to the disciples who were grumbling at him because he did not reassure them after their shock and outrage at the incident with a rich young ruler. They say, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. And he says, for sure, you will receive everything back and more in the resurrection. But first, know this, the first will be last, and the last will be first. In other words, grace is going to expose everything about how you're thinking about the world. And it's going to expose that the way that you have been thinking about yourselves in the world as wrong-headed. Basically, the perspective that you are bringing to this moment is wrong. You've been thinking that you gave everything up to follow Jesus, and therefore you're heroic, you're admirable, you have supreme status in the kingdom. And we know from Luke's gospel that the disciples thought exactly this way. They're constantly quarreling with each other about who's greatest in the kingdom. But that is to make human beings the protagonist and the story of the kingdom coming and not God himself. It is to create and live in another sinful world, one that is adjacent to the one the disciples were already living in, in which we belong to ourselves and we can revel and boast in our accomplishments and how much we have sacrificed for Jesus, rather than knowing ourselves always and forever to be completely dependent upon God. Friends, we are completely at God's mercy for the next breath we draw into our lungs. The only reason that we can draw breath into our lungs right at this very minute is because God is not done with us yet. He still has purposes for us. That's the only reason we are here is because of the grace of God. And because of that, we are also completely at His disposal in the expansion of the kingdom. The story also shows us, however, that we are not an afterthought. Even though we are not the protagonist of the story, neither are we inconsequential. God is just, just in the same measure as he is merciful. The first workers get paid as much as the last. He takes care of what we need. He sees us. But he is at the center of the story and not us. If we, like the disciples, are grumbling because those who come after us get paid the same as us, then it shows us that sin has not yet been displaced by grace in our hearts. What do we deserve? That's what this story is asking us to examine. God God owes us nothing. And therefore, everything we receive is a gift from him. We are his creation. We are the work of his hand. He can dispose us in whatever way he wants. And if grace begins to make inroads into our hearts, that is the reality that will begin to become what is truest for us. If grace comes into our hearts and it illuminates our minds and it helps us to breathe again, the evidence of that happening is the change in our perspective. And Jesus masterfully tells us this story in such a way as to create exactly that change of perspective in the reader. As he tells the story, we're sympathetic to the perspective of the first-hour workers until the owner speaks. But then suddenly the truth is unveiled. The owner has not cheated anyone. He has shown kindness, generosity and mercy to the other workers, paying them more than they deserved while not underpaying the ones who contracted first. The first-hour workers were sitting there thinking, we'll get paid more, or what's he doing paying those other guys the same as us? But instead, we suddenly realized that they should have been thinking, what a generous employer we serve. He's taking a giant loss today, paying far more for labor than he has to. He could have been saving money for himself. That's the kind of employer I want to work for, because that could be me next time. And so the owner goes on to rebuke the first workers because they've been seeing the whole thing wrong. And in so doing, Jesus is simultaneously rebuking the disciples because they have been seeing the whole situation wrong. The workers have been misled by their eyes and their imaginations into misinterpreting the value of money and possessions. And so that they've been led to misunderstand both themselves and the character of the owner. The grace that is extended to the late late workers is also a grace to those who came first because the first workers are now given the opportunity to reconsider who they are. Can you imagine how painful it must have been for the disciples to hear this story? It would have been cut to the heart. Jesus, we're sorry. We've been thinking about this whole thing wrong. and We're culpable for that. Jesus is saying to them, yes, you've given everything to follow me, but no more than you should have done. You will be paid exactly what you were owed, but others paid far more than they are owed. What is that to you? Because all is grace. Because the point of grace is to introduce us to the Lord of life. The resentment you feel about this, disciples, will be an opportunity for you to consider why it is that you were following me in the first place. Are you following me because I am the way, the truth, and the life? Or are you following me because there are benefits and there is status for doing so? Either Jesus is worthy and glorious in himself because he possesses divine life. He is the only place where we will experience life and he is worth giving everything for or we will find some other way of life that is less demanding. Each time that we feel snubbed or passed over, that is an opportunity for us to reframe our perspective. When someone younger than us or less talented than we believe ourselves to be achieves fame or notoriety or success, and we're passed over, we're faced with that same decision point that the disciples were faced with. When we perceive that the culture which has been comfortable for some of us to live in for many years suddenly begins to shift, we're faced with a decision point. Who are we and who is God? What have we secretly set in the place of God that has toppled him from the throne of our hearts? Have we imagined that following God would be without cost or that we could set what the cost is? That is cheap grace. Did we think that he would confirm through success and material possessions and a life of ease that we are okay after all? That is cheap grace. Are we willing to feel the flaming sword of grace cut into us, severing us from attachments that keep us enclosed in the sinful world that we have created for ourselves and from which we desperately need to escape? That's Is true grace. That is costly grace. It is grace that makes us realize that we are actually in bondage when we think we are free. It is grace that exposes who we are so that we can see that from which we need the greatest liberation. More than anything else, what Jesus demands from us is our hearts. He demands them not because he is the unjust owner of the vineyard. He demands them because there is nothing else that will satisfy us. He has made us for himself and we will be satisfied with nothing less than him. So my friends, when grace comes to you today, tomorrow, this week, do not harden your hearts. Open your hearts to Christ. Accept the rebuke, because He loves you. He is for you. He desires your salvation, and that He would possess your hearts above all things. And He is good. Amen.